Do you want to become a better songwriter? Well, we created a very simple 10-minute songwriter personality test, and it's going to help you better understand who you are as a writer, and it's going to help you in the writer's room when you're writing with other writers, because you're going to be able to identify what kind of writer they are, maybe even have them take the songwriter personality test. If you're curious and you want to take the songwriter personality test today, just visit songwriterpersonalitytest.com or go to the link on the writingworship.co website. Welcome to the Writing Worship Podcast, a place for kingdom-minded songwriters to grow in their craft and community. Writing Worship Podcast. I'm Eric Nordoff, and today we have a very special guest who joined us recently in our writing club, Vince Wilcox. He has enjoyed a lifetime of rich experiences as a music industry professional, attorney, educator, and author. He's going to talk about all of his experience and give some amazing feedback from a business perspective for you who have questions about songwriting and how to properly set up your songs for success. So this is a great conversation. We had uh, a little background on Vince. Vince and I worked together back at Provident Music Group. Actually, before Provident Music Group became Provident, it was a union of Benson Records, Reunion Records, and Brentwood Music. Those three companies merged and became Provident Music Group. And that's the time when Vince and I worked together. I'll date myself here. We worked together in 1997 through 1999. And uh, it was wonderful to work with him. And I was so grateful to reconnect with him because Vince actually became my son's, one of my son's teachers at Trevecca Nazarene University. So kind of full circle moment there. But Vince started in the warehouse of Benson Records in 1979. He rose through the ranks eventually to become vice president of marketing before resigning in 1991 to write and tour as an artist for five years. Probably had to get that out of his system, right? Along the way, he recorded three albums, had dozens of songs published, and was an executive producer for 70 other projects, including a Dove Award-winning album. His artistic collaboration with Don Pardo earned them four number one Christian country singles and Industries Horizon Award for Best New Artist in 1997. In the late 90s, when Vince and I worked together, Vince returned to the corporate setting as vice president of BMG's Provident Music Group, overseeing sales for such artists as Jars of Clay, Michael W. Smith, Fred Hammond, and Third Day. In 2001, he left Provident to form Van Leer Wilcox Artist Management, co-managing New Song, Todd Agnew, comedian John Morgan, and the Winter Jam Tour Spectacular, which is still going strong today. Later that decade, he entered law school to become an entertainment attorney. While in law school, he served in the office of the public defender of the 21st Judicial District in Tennessee. After graduating from law school and earning admission to the Tennessee Bar, he became general manager of Belden Street Music Publishing and Discover Worship, an online music service for choir directors and worship leaders. 
after teaching part-time in the Skinner School of Business and Technology at Trevecca Nazarene University for four years, Vince was promoted to assistant professor and full-time director of the music business program in the fall of 2020. Vince holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in Religious Studies from the University of Virginia, a Master of Science in Education from Old Dominion University, and a Doctor of Jurisprudence from Nashville School of Law. His recent book, How to Make a Living in the Music Business, joins self-published devotional studies on the Gospel of Mark and the Lord's Prayer. Vince lives with his wife and extended family in Franklin, Tennessee, with their beloved dogs. And I have been on calls with him where they have barked. So um, great conversation that Nick Morrow, our director of writing worship, has with Vince inside of our writing club. We had about 12 other writers in the room. And after the interview for this podcast, Vince took a bunch of questions in writing club. So I think uh, all of the members really valued that. All right, well, why don't we go ahead and jump into the conversation that Nick Morrow has with Vince Wilcox. I know you'll enjoy it. Well, Vince Wilcox, welcome to the Writing Worship Podcast. Thank you. It is my honor to be here. Can I tell you my journey a little bit because it's um it's kind of convoluted but it's been it's been good looking back i can see how all the pieces the lord has put together for his glory and for for my good i came to nashville 44 years ago Uh, my wife and i landed on this campus this very campus uh, for her to finish up her undergraduate degree and i had just finished my undergraduate degree and was planning on doing something in my my plans changed, so I thought, I'm in Nashville. I love music. I, I really want to be involved in the music business, but I had no education, I had no experience, and I had no contacts. So I literally bought a Gospel Music Association directory and went door-to-door to about 30 or 40 places until I finally landed a job <laughs> in the warehouse of Benson Records, which was at the time one of the prestigious record labels in town. And I I was insatiably curious. I, you know, read the back of every record. I figured out who the producers, who the songwriters were, who what artists were selling. I kind of became an expert from the ground up and was eventually promoted to customer service because I I loved talking about music and the artists and the and the and the records and eventually into sales. And uh I did that for a number of years and um um, moved back to Virginia for a while, got my master's degree, and then moved back to Nashville uh, to become a sales rep. Did that for a number of years and became uh, be, eventually became vice president of marketing, uh, responsible for over 100 new records a year. This is in the late 80s, early 90s. And so you may have heard some of these artists, Carmen, DeGarmon Key, Glad, Sandy Patty, Larnell Harris, um, uh, Striper, <laughs> headbanging. And is this uh, the Bible. So is this at Benson? This is at Benson, right? You're back at Benson. Okay. I'm back yeah. at Benson. Thank you. Good, good clarification. So I did that for several years until I was in my mid-30s. I thought, man, you know, it, I've always wanted to be, uh, I learned a lot about the music business. I learned a lot about songwriting and production. And I thought, if I don't do it now, I never will. So I resigned that. And for the next five years, wrote, recorded, and toured my own music, did a hundred dates a year for five years, played the Ryman Auditorium. Uh, among other places, and ended up um, 
we were in a, in a niche genre, a Christian country, but we ended up getting four or five number one singles and the new artist of the year award in the, in the late nineties. And so I did that for a number of years. And uh, until my kids were getting older, my wife really wanted me home more. And, and that's where I met Eric Nordoff. I stepped into a role as vice president of sales for the, the new Provident Music Distribution, which was at the time BMG's uh, Christian uh, label group. And that's where I met Eric. He was handling international sales at the time. And, uh, and, and, and that involved managing a staff of 40 or 50 people and 40 or $50 million worth of annual income. I did that until I realized that selling shrink-wrapped plastic was not a good career path because eventually that was going to go away. And it did. And uh, I left that job to, um, to start an artist and tour management company. We managed the Winter Jam Tour Spectacular for six or seven years. Uh, the largest uh, tour uh, annual Christian music tour in the year of, in, in the world. Uh, I, I left that to go to law school. Along the way, ended up being um, an online publisher. And along the way, about eight years ago, I got recruited to teach at Trebekah Nazarene University, where I teach uh, all aspects of music business, artist management, uh, music industry law, uh, uh, publishing, um, uh, and any number of other classes, including some pre-law classes. But where I'm going with that is. Uh, you know, that wasn't the career path I, I thought I was going to be on. I'm not quite sure I knew what my career path was, but I just kept following the desire that the Lord put in my heart to um, to be involved in music that moved people, music that transformed and inspired and challenged people. And so um, as each new opportunity came, uh, and, and it does, I mean, the, the music industry evolves uh, we change, we, we, you know, we, we evolve. And uh, as each new opportunity came, I, I, I gave consideration, I thought about it. And then if the door seemed like a good one, I walked through it. And so looking back now over 44 years, I, I can, I, I'm just honored to have been involved in, in, in an industry that I believe has the power to transform and inspire our world. So thank you for letting me be your guest today. That was the best intro we've ever had. Of all. <laughs> that was amazing. And that's my first question. Well, you know, it's always my first question. Tell us about your story. That was such a, an amazing, uh, succinct story. I'm sure you've done this many times now, uh, you know, as you're teaching and other things. But I have several questions. As you were talking, I'm, I, one of them, kind of where you landed was, as you, you know, you were just sort of trying to sort out what the career path was for you, trying to trust the Holy Spirit's leading in that. Was there any of those? Because I mean, you're a bit of a Swiss Army knife, it sounds like, and you've or done a-, a guy who just can't keep a job. <laughs> One of the two, but the, there's you've done a lot of things now that are that are pretty different in the music industry. Was there any of those decisions that were really tough to make? Well, uh, I I was not immediately as at, at good at songwriting singing, performing, and re- recording as I was in sales and marketing and logistics. And so uh, one thing I found in this industry is if if you develop a reputation for being good at something, they're going to grab you and, 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 and let you do that as long as you possibly can. And they'll keep piling more and more on your plate until you, you break or you, or you succeed. So um, I, I really liked the creative aspect of the music business. I like the part where, you know, whether it's writing a song or coming up with a concept for a record or putting a tour package together or helping 
an artist define what she he or she is about. I, that whole that whole creative aspect is really satisfying to me. But I very often I would be asked to, you know, we, what we really need you to do for the next two years is run this sales division and make these sales goals and manage these artists uh, or manage these sales reps. And and I've been asked to do things that weren't as as personally satisfying to me as other things were, but they, you know, I, one is it was a way to serve the industry um, that I was in. And so I, I always have to remember that it's not just about me. It's about serving the kingdom. And especially when you're involved in a kingdom industry, a kingdom in kingdom business. And so there were things that I did that I wasn't as excited about necessarily, but I realized it was all part of my journey. And so I was willing to do it for a couple of years um, two or three years in order to learn and to become competent at something and to kind of build my credentials and my reputation. So, but then there are other things I've done, like being out on the road as an artist or being a songwriter, going to the studio that, that had a very high satisfaction value, but not necessarily as lucrative as, as it, you know, as one would like it to be. So here, here's my rule of thumb. And I, I say this to uh, I say it to myself, I tell myself this whenever there's a career opportunity in front of me. And I also tell it to people I work with, okay? There are three things to look for in a job, in a specific job. One is inherent satisfaction. How how does uh, how much does this job light you up, okay? So the, there's the satisfaction level. Is it satisfying? Secondly, is it fair pay? Okay, so sometimes you can have something that's very high satisfying, but very, you know, modest pay. Okay, well, and that may be a trade off you're willing to make, you know, and honestly, no one is promised uh, a career in something they love. You know, that's that's really a luxury to get paid for something you love doing. So um, is it satisfying? Is it am I receiving fair pay? And then the third thing I tell people is. Will this help my career path, my future career path? Is it is it getting me somewhere that uh, that I, else that I want to go? And 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 certainly um, th- with those three things, you kind of balance them. I'm willing if you can get one of those things. Mm, well, if it's very satisfying but doesn't doesn't pay well and it doesn't help your career path, maybe maybe not. If it's satisfying and there's fair pay, uh, then. Well, you know, it, if it doesn't help my career path, well, still two of the three things, or if it's pays well, and it helps me with my career path, but isn't inherently satisfying. Okay, get two of the, two of the three. That's not bad. If you can get all three of those things, run after that job, you know, pray hard and do everything you can to get the job. So uh, I tell people that work for me, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I ask them, is this job inherently satisfying to you? You know, is this something you can live on? And and three, do you think it's going to help you get where you want to go? Because what I'm going to do is if you will make a commitment of one or two year commitment to to this job, to this company, to what we're doing, then then I will help you get to the next place you want to go. I'm not going to hold you back. I'm not going to hold you down. And I think from a management standpoint, uh, I've had people who were my bosses who wanted to help me get where I wanted to go. So helping people get where they want to go makes them highly motivated, even if you're, they're not necessarily thrilled about this specific job or are or, or just being paid modestly. So those are the three uh, variables I encourage people to think about 
and that I think about when I'm considering a new opportunity. That's in- incredible. Uh, I this is the first time I think I've uh, muted to start taking notes. I hope you guys are taking notes during our interviews. That, that, that's so good. Vince, if I didn't already have like the greatest bosses in the world and Chrissy and Eric Nordoff, I'd send you an application today. I think a lot of people are looking for this, um, especially in today's workforce economy. Um, there's the piece of like, are, are you going to stay here forever? And that's kind of a, a hard commitment for anyone to really make. Yeah. But to say, can you, th- that piece where you said, can you commit to one or two years of really working at your best ability? Um, that's, that's so good. Well, I, I could dive in deep there, but I do have a bunch of other questions that I'm sure okay. people are curious about. What do you feel like? So you just kind of gave us a flyby of a few decades of your uh, career in the music business. What are the biggest lessons you feel like you roll into? I mean, that's one of them that you just shared. What other things are you rolling into your like teaching and passing on to younger folks now that you learned from your years in the industry? Well, thank you. Um, I'm still learning. Um, I'm a type A personality, so I really go at things and I get organized and I figure out what all the resources I need. And then I put a to-do list together and I go after things with a lot of grit and a lot of passion. And, um, and, and I think a lot of successful people in the music business are like that. But one of the things that I was, have not been good at down through the years is in enjoying the enjoying the ride that is being grateful for where I am and what I'm doing right now uh, I'm always thinking about what is the product where do I want to be what's the destination and I know this sounds very zen like but uh, the journey is really really important because the journey is what makes you who you are and you know we we tend to think of you know we want to write a song or we want to create an album or we want to get a record deal or we want to go out on tour and th- those are all things that we do. The, que- the real question is, what is God making us into? Who is God making us into? And so uh, I, I'm trying, even at 66, I'm still trying to learn to be still and be in the moment, be present with the people around me, my family, and not always put my sense of self-worth or self-gratification out into the future because there are so many things that I can be grateful for in the moment that I'm living in. Now, several years ago, my daughter gave me a watch with a, with a train on it, her pocket watch. And she said, daddy, I'm, I'm going to try to enjoy the ride because it is, I mean, we, we have been given a, a gift called life and we, and we only have the moment that we're in. We don't know if we're going to have another moment. And so rather than postponing my sense of self, um, uh, gratification, sense of gratification or security or identity, putting that out in the front. If, if I can only get there, if I can only do that, if I can learn to be present with my family in particular, with the Lord in particular, and, uh, and, and then I, then I won't end up burning the wick. Okay. If you think of an oil lamp, you, you put oil in the lamp and then the, the oil wicks up and you, and the oil burns through the wick. But the the thing that you don't want to do is burn your wick, because if the wick burns out, then you'll you won't have any light. And so that that that's to me the definition of burnout when I when I burn my wick instead of letting the oil of of God's spirit and the oil of life and the oil of joy light up my life. And so I, it's still I, I mean it's still a constant 
struggle for me. But, you know, there, there are lots of music businessy kind of things I could talk about that I've learned. But the, the biggest issue is, you know, what is God making me? Who is God making me? Not, not just what am I doing or what am I producing, but what is he, what is God making in me and how can I um, be a good steward of that in the moment I'm in? And, uh, and I've seen so many people uh, in music business and performance, you know, you, you just look at the life, the lifestyles, uh, they burn their wicks. I mean, I was been watching this, um, uh, Showtime, um, uh, series on, uh, um, let's see, who is it? It's, um, the possum and, uh, what's, what's his name? You know, country music singer, uh, awesome. pardon me. That's his nickname. Well, yeah, it's a possum. It's a, it's a Tammy Wynette and George Jones. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, Tammy Wynette died at 55. Oh my goodness. You know, uh, Elvis Presley, you know, died. What was he even in his fifties? Jim Croce died at 32. You know, um, people who have been highly successful in commercial music tend to not have long lives and they tend to have, um, and they, and they tend to have a, a trail of broken relationships at the end of life. You know, the Lord's not going to say, well, you know, uh, your number one single was awesome. You know, he's going to say, you know, did you love your wife? Did you take care of your kids? You know, were you faithful? And so uh, one, one quick story. So I, I mentioned I moved back to Virginia before I moved back to Tennessee. So I was in Tennessee trying to do the music thing, kind of, yeah, it didn't go so well. Moved back to Virginia, working on my master's. And uh, a guy called me and said, hey, I heard you play guitar. Would you be interested in, in performing some music in a, in a jail ministry? And I said, well, sure. So uh, I went to the jail, Suffolk, Virginia. What we would do is uh, he, he would introduce me. I'd sing a song. I'd share a little bit of my testimony. And then he would give a very short gospel message. And then we would move on to the next cell block of 10 men. And we do the same thing. And then we'd move to the next cell block of 10 men. And so um, I was singing for this group of 10 men behind bars and uh, I shared with them how I had these aspirations of singing to thousands of people. And, you know, I'm, now I'm doing this. And I don't, I don't know what, where I was going with that story. But after I sang, uh, this inmate said, brother, I need to tell you something. So I walked up to the bar. He said, you're going to sing to thousands of people. It may be 10 at a time. But I believe that you're going to be faithful to God and he's going to give you the opportunity to use your music. And I thought I left that place with a whole different definition of what success was. It wasn't how many people you're singing in front of. It's just how faithful you're being with whatever God has given you. And so um, that 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 wrestling with um, with success and what it means to be faithful and to be a good steward, that that is the single biggest challenge I've had my entire life. And my goal is that, you know, um, that I will hear one day, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful, you know, maybe with a few things, you know, that's all. And and that's, that's the applause of heaven. And that's, you know, there's nothing like that. That's so, that's so good. Uh, Chidi in the comments was just saying how much that's striking him as well. I think, 
I'd love to dig in there for a second because we inherently, especially those of us who are leading worship or, you know, on a stage microphone recording all these things, it's kind of inherently um, not so humble, right? You, yeah. cause there's, a, there's an element of you have to be the one people are listening to or looking at or whatever. And, and, and it's really hard. And I watch behind the scenes all the time as you do, like, you know, we can see people that are struggling with that. Um, to, with varying levels of success, but what, as you've walked your journey and watched, walked with others, what are you finding? Are there like practices that you've put into play that you've found to be helpful? Um, even just really practical things. Well, that's a great question. And I've I actually asked that question of Al Andrews, who started a counseling service for Christian and country music artists called Porter's Call. Have you ever heard of it, Nick? Uh Some of you you are nodding. Yeah. Anyway, it's called Porter's Call. And over the last 10 or 15 years, they have counseled literally thousands of country music and um, and and faith based uh, artists and their their spouses. Now, in order to get free or cheap counseling there, you actually have to be out on stage. But um, one and I asked him about, you know. How, how to keep an artist from self-destructing. How do we keep ourselves from self-destructing? And he said, there are a couple of things. One is to surround yourself with people uh, that you can be honest with and who can be honest with you. Because obviously once you get famous, you get a, a lot of people who are just trying to suck up to you and, and, and get some claim to your fame. But if you have friends that were your friends before you were famous <laughs> And they can they can call you out. Oh man, there's a great new Drew Holcomb song called "You Got to Find Your People." Oh my gosh! After after we're done this, I want every one of you to go pull up the new Drew Holcomb record. The song's called "Find Your People," and the idea is you got to find the people who will call you out, who will laugh with you, who will cry with you, who will stay up all night with you, who will you know who will bail you out of jail if that's what you need. But you need somebody like that in your life. You need people like that in your life. So you know, finding a group of people that you can be honest with and who can be honest with you. Uh, and then and then kind of related to that is finding a person that you can confide in. Um, and, you know, it might be a clergy member, it might be a counselor, but that you can tell anything to. Because I think what happens, as you were alluding, Nick, to people on stage, what happens is you develop an onstage persona, whether you're a worship leader or a performer. And, and you know, you work very hard to craft your persona and this is your this is your tagline and this is your positioning statement. I get that because I this is what I've done for a living. But it's really important that you have somebody that you can you can tell anything to who won't throw you out or condemn you or, you know, um, and, and, and who will help you work through those things. And so, you know, having somebody you can literally confess something to that you that's the worst thing imaginable if you told your spouse would maybe undo your marriage. If you told your audience, it would alienate them. But having somebody who can be that person who can, you can be honest with, um, you know, whether it's a, a, a clergy person or a counselor, that, that makes for a lot healthier situation because this putting on of the persona and having to carry this lie around. I mean, you, you, you guys know that the, um, the word for hypocrite um, it can't, comes from the, uh, I guess, the Greek word for the the actor who who put the mask on and acted behind the mask. Okay, and so it's it's not necessarily a person who 
does duplicious things. It's just the mask. And the mask is a lot of work. And man, I was uh, reading an interview with Lady Gaga last year. And she said, being Lady Gaga almost killed her because it was such a difficult mask to carry it, to, to, to put on all the time. She got to the point where she couldn't, she hated sitting down at the piano because um, it was all part of her mask. And so she had to undo that. Now I'm not saying how emotionally or spiritually healthy Lady Gaga is, but I, I love the fact that she was transparent about, about how difficult it is to be an authentic person. And mm. so, um, you know, th- those are the things that, um, you know, and from a practical standpoint, like when I was all out on the road, I know we would always make at least one weekend a month where we were, we were off the road so we could be in church with our family. And then, uh, for those of you who have been on the road for any length of time, I mean, it's a lot of fun, but it's also a lot of work. And it's, if you're away from your spouse and your family, I, I, I kind of felt like every day I was gone, I was digging a hole. Okay. Digging a hole, digging a hole, digging a hole. I was farther away. And then when I came, the time I was home, I just felt like I was just filling in the hole, filling in the hole, filling in a hole. I never felt like I was really making any progress building something. Mm-hmm. So, um, you've got to be very intentional about your relationships. Uh, I read a statistic several years ago that the divorce rate in Middle Tennessee, obviously where the music business is, is three to four times higher than the national rate. And that's because people are willing to compromise uh, the time they spend with their family, you know, with their kids. They, they, they're willing to bet everything uh, on a career that may or may not be successful. And, you know, most of you know the, the way the music business works. Uh, if you are signed to a record deal, then uh, by a record label, traditionally what you, you, they do is they advance the money for the production of the record. They advance uh, uh, sometimes uh, some what's called a pocket advance. So the artist has something to live off of while they're making their record. And, and there are a lot of promotional expenses that they cover, but some of them, uh, if the artist wants something that's beyond what the re- record label typically does, then uh, they advance the cost of promotion. And so all those advances, the production expense, the pr- promotional expense, the pocket advance goes into a pot called a recoupment pot. And then what happens is for every record sold or streamed, uh, the record company pays itself back at the artist's royalty. Then once all of those advances have been recouped, once it's paid itself back, then it turns around and pays the artist their royalty. So um, most artists don't see virtually any money uh, in the first several years, if any. And then on top of that, that, that's called recoupment. On top of that, uh, only about 15% of the records that record labels make, they do this for a living, about 15% of them actually recoup the other 85 don't. The other 85% don't, which means that the artist never sees any money. And uh, you know, where I'm going with that is that uh, it's an incredibly speculative business. And the chances of being successful are very, very low. And so, especially if you're, if you're, if you're banking on trying to win the lottery, which is basically what it, what it, what it means. If, if you're trying to, to make millions as a writer or a performer, because it, and, and the odds are against you. And so um, you have to go into it knowing that the odds are against you. And so you have to set realistic expectations about what you want your lifestyle to be along the way, because if you end up, you know, 
using all your emotional and relational re- and financial resources up. And at the end of the day, don't have anything to show for it. You've gained, you, you haven't even gained the world and you've lost your soul. <laughs> That's, you know, as opposed to a person who's, who ends up with a ridiculous amount of success, but still, you know, uh, uses up all their relational financial and, um, and uh, emotional resources, spiritual resources along the way. So it's a very speculative, very dangerous business to be in from a personal level. But there are people who have who've managed it well. They've surrounded themselves with good teammates. That's probably the, other, the third thing besides friends, clergy, I think team, competent teammates. Um, nobody does this alone. No matter how great a quarterback is, you can the quarterback alone cannot win a game. You have to have you have to have a whole team of people around you. So just bind yourself to people that you like working with because you may you may be successful, you may not be. But if you enjoy it, if you enjoy it along the way, that's that's kind of cool. That you've got something you've you're taking away something at the end of the day. Boy, there's so much wisdom in all of that, and I'm sure more we can draw out too. I, I think is it fair to say? Um, First of all, I was going to ask the question: What if you if you knew a percentage of records that recoup versus those that don't? Which fifteen to eighty five is a pretty scary. If you're an artist, you know it's a it's a wild. And that's number. actually pretty optimistic. It's typically ten to fifteen percent. And then what record labels tend to do in order to increase the chances that they're going to recoup over the course of the artist contract is they basically say, okay all the records you produce under this contract, we're going to take all the income from all five of your records, and we're going to apply that to all of the expenses for all five of your records. And that's called cross collateralization. So you may lose money on your first record. You may lose a little bit of money on your second record, but maybe your third record ends up paying for the third record, the second record, and the first record. But even if you do that, uh, it's entirely possible that you as an artist, still don't get any artist royalties because all you've done is pay back the record label for the cost of production, the cost of promotion, and the artist advances they give you. So, uh, and 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 because you guys are songwriters, um, typically a record label will want the the artist who's a singer songwriter to assign their publishing, either all their publishing or co-publishing, to a affiliate to an affiliated publishing a company that's affiliated publishing company that's affiliated with the record label because that again uh, increases the chances that their the company collectively will will make money but it's uh, uh, and then uh, and of course you might end up getting a publishing advance that's separate from your record advance based upon how many songs you turn in and you know the fact they're going to use your songs on 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 your own record. But, um, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's incredibly speculative business. And so what I tell people is, you know, you can, you can, you can think, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try to win the lottery. I'm going to do all the things I can possibly think of to try to get all the odds in my favor. So I can get a big record deal and big publishing deal. And what I tell people is, okay, that's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is saying, how can I find joy? And satisfaction in creating and presenting music that honors God, um, and and so you don't have to have a record label to do that. You don't have to have a publisher to do it. But what you guys have realized is that if you can surround yourself with a community of people of like-minded, like-hearted people, 
uh, who can help you become better. It's very hard to become better by yourself. Uh, then, then that will that will increase the chances that you can have you can have joy in doing it. And you may, like I said, you may be ten at a time. <laughs> you may be you may be singing to ten at a time. Last um, Wednesday night, um, what I've been doing as I get closer to retirement is uh, I like I like doing cover songs from the sixties and seventies, and so uh, I sang at a, a retirement home, uh, very uh, agile, ambulatory retirees, mostly in their 70s, some of them in their 80s. So the, the 60s and 70s were almost a little bit too old. I had to learn, uh, can't help falling in love with you by the by the king to, you know, to give them something that connected with them. But I I walked out of that room, 50, 50 60, 75 people. I had so much fun. There was so much joy. They were singing along with my John Denver and my Peter Paul and Mary songs. And I thought, this is awesome. You know, I, I'm making a living and I'm getting to do music. Now I'm not making a living performing and writing, but to do both. Wow. What a, what a privilege. And so again, that kind of goes back to that thing about not making your, your putting your joy way out there where you can't get to it. F- find places that you can use your music where you can serve, get better at what you do, practice, rehearse, you know, find, you know, great mentors and just do it. And another thing to remember is this life is just the rehearsal for eternity. So if you like writing, if you love playing, if you love singing, you're going to be doing that for a lot longer than you're walking on this planet. So you're just just starting out. So don't feel like you got to got got to get it all done by the end of the year. <laughs> That's so wonderful, Vince. The I think that the thing that's really striking me as you're talking is the the sense of delayed joy, you know, or I, sometimes because it's really easy, I think, especially for those of us maybe who are drivers and willing to sacrifice a lot now for something that um, you can say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to enjoy when fill in the blank. You know, it's a really easy trap to fall into, I think, especially in music. I'm curious because we have so many of our both folks here on the call with us right now, um, folks in our writing club and people who will listen later that are independent artists. And, um, I, you know, with the things that you've just spelled out, it, it definitely these days, it's like, well, a label feels a little bit like a creative bank or something in some ways. And um, there's definitely some upsides to it. But there's also some uh, maybe more upsides, at least from my perspective of being an independent artist these days and finding some of those paths you can take yourself. What are you seeing as, you know, you've watched a lot of shifts over the past 15, 20 years, especially in the music industry. And what's your encouragement to folks who are kind of doing the independent artist thing, maybe even doing kind of well and and starting to get some traction. Um, What's the encouragement there for those folks? Well, um, I have several things I want to say to people who are doing that. First of all, um, you should be building your own tribe. You should find your people, as um, Drew Holcomb sings, and find people that you can sing to and find people who who resonate with what you're singing and saying, okay? And so it may be 50 people, it may be 100, it may be 500, it may be 1,000 um, at some point. Uh, if you build a big enough tribe, uh, then what's going to happen is record labels are going to being paying attention. They're going to, you're going to get their attention, not because 
you put together a slick promotional piece, but because they're tracking the analytics that come through Spotify and Apple Music. I mean, they're paying very close attention. I talked to a friend of mine at a Christian label last year, and he said they're at any given point, there are 50 or 60 indie bands, indie artists they're looking at that, that don't even maybe know that they're being followed simply because they can go into the analytics and see, you know, um, how many streams are coming out and, and, you know, and where they're building their, uh, building their, their tribe. So one is build your tribe, because if, if you've been given a message, if you've been, then you, you need to find your audience and, and you need to go and serve them and serve them the best you can. And don't think of, Hey, I got, this is a target audience. I'm going to target them. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's words we use in marketing, but rather than saying they're a target audience, think of them as a group of people that you have the privilege of serving. And so whatever you're doing, serve them, you know, give them great content, give them, you know, give them something worth their time because they have a lot of choices. I mean, you've probably heard this statistic currently, uh, the music platforms are receiving, they're uploading 120,000 new tracks every day, 120,000 new tracks every day. Okay. So how do you, how do you burst through that? Well, I don't think you worry about breaking through that noise. What you do is you concern yourself with being a good steward of the, um, the tribe that, that is in front of you and, and whether it's your church or your community and maybe it becomes a regional thing. When we were touring, what we did was instead of trying to tour the whole country, we picked 10 cities, 15 cities within a four or five hour drive. And we just focused on developing a regional following, going back there three or four times a year and telling them we were going to come back and, you know, just kind of building people who enjoyed what we did. And, and, and that was a good way of doing it. And, you know, we had at, at, the end of four or five years, we were making a reasonably good living. Um, uh, I needed to be home more with my kids, which is why I came back off the road. But um, I think instead of thinking of the record deal or the publishing deal as the destination, uh, I think you think of your journey. You know, how can I, who can I serve? Where are they? How can I serve them? Um, you know, what songs do I need to write to connect, to resonate with the the people that God is putting me in front of. And, um, and what will happen, is, as I said, if you start getting some traction, um, the analytics will, will kind of ding, 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 sound the alarm to the record labels and they'll start, they'll start paying attention to you. And then maybe you'll start getting a call about, you know, um, uh, about, you know, maybe meeting with them or maybe they're having an artist retreat and they're going to be very, slow to sign a new artist because as we said 15% of the records they make make money the other 85% don't and so they don't jump into things anymore especially since they're not recouping whole CDs at a time that when when you sold a CD the record label will typically uh generate you know a buck and a quarter to a buck 50 in artist royalties per $15 CD okay so they could recoup you know a buck 25 to a buck 50 for every sale they make. Now with a stream, a record label is recouping 0.004 cents per stream. So it takes a million streams to recoup $4,000 in production budget. Okay. It takes a million streams to recoup $4,000 in production budget. So record labels are understandably um, 
slow. They want to develop relationships with people. So there's no way to jump the line, in my opinion. American Idol, you know, America's Got Talent sounds like there's a way to jump the line, but there's a big, there's a big obstacle there in that if you sign, if you sign just to get on that show, you're signing away your creative freedom for as long as they decide they want to keep it, even if they don't use you. (laughs) It's, it's, it's a little scary. So, uh, so your question was, what do you say to indie artists? I say, find your people, find a people, a group of people, you know, serve them, you know, keep coming back to them with fresh, new, inspiring, challenging music, Uh, then find a way to monetize it. And that's going to be through, um, you know, merch sales and people are still selling CDs, oddly enough, CDs more as an autographable uh, souvenir than as a, as a, a a medium. But I mean, there's still things you can sell. Uh, You know, there's a Patreon, there's ways that you can get them to support you and, and, and do that. Now where I'm going with this is if you build enough momentum in the marketplace and the label starts talking to you, then you say to them, look, I've got, you know, I've got 50,000 followers or I've got an email list of, you know, 20,000 people uh, uh, that I speak to on a regular basis who are willing to support me. So what you said, Nick, about being the bank, record labels were traditionally the bank. You know, they advanced the money. Okay, but do we need the bank anymore? Maybe not. Um, maybe you can crowdsource your recordings. Um, um, you know, th- their, their music's on the same pl- in the same store as yours in the Apple store, a Spotify store. So, um, you know, they're actually looking for artists who have a platform. They're looking for artists who have a reach. So you're going out and doing that for them. So now you have, you have leverage if they come to you and say, you know, we want to sign you. And then you say, well, you know, I, I want to own my own master. I don't need you, you to recoup it and then eventually pay me one day. I'll just pay for my own masters. And, you know, with your creative, um, over oversight and then we can um and i'll own them which is what every artist taylor swift kanye west garth brooks they all want to own their masters at the end of the day because they realize that um that's an asset that they can eventually sell one day you know bruce springsteen sold his masters and his publishing for like half a billion dollars last year you know paul simon uh just sold his for about a quarter of a million dollars two years ago so um, quarter of a billion dollars, sorry, quarter of a billion with a B. So, um, you know, it's an asset from a business standpoint. So, um, you know, I, I again, I, I would tell people not to get in the rat race of trying to get the legitimacy of a record label or a publisher. Uh, you know, even if you don't have a publishing deal, you know, you can co-write with people who do. And, you know, and and that experience itself, they're, their professional managers will critique your songs. You'll get feedback. They'll pitch your songs. And maybe, maybe you sign your songs to them on a song by song basis, you know, or maybe you have your own, you start your own publishing company and you co-pub with them where you own half of your share of the publishing. And then you assign the other half of the publishing share to that company. So that gives them a stake, gives them more incentive to want to, you know, go out and, and make something of your song. So um, I, th- I think independent, back to your point, Nick, being an independent artist, there's never been a better time because you have the same tools at your disposal that, um, a lot of these, uh, major companies have, and they're just trying to find artists that people love. 
So be that. Be that. Writers who write songs that people love. Do that, you know. Yes. Yeah. Boy, I feel like we're just bursting with questions, probably. We probably have a lot of folks. I want to get to that here in a minute. But Vince, before we do that, we usually start with a wild lightning round at the very beginning. We jumped right in today, but I if you'll if you'll grant us, if you'll uh, humor us, doing the lightning round at the end um, with uh, a couple simple questions. And, and I always tell people, don't think too hard because musicians want to, you know, think really hard about these and give a good answer. But my first one is this. Um, if you were on a desert island and you could only take the catalog of three songwriters with you, who would it be? Andrew Peterson. Mm. Paul Simon and Paul McCartney. Oh, you got, I think those two of mine, the last two are in my, my top three as well. That's, uh, both of those guys come up a lot, as you can imagine. They've got such a vast catalog. Um, okay. If here's, here's a fun one. If you could go back in time and you could stop one song from happening and ever existing, you could just erase it. What song would that be? It would be Imagine by John Lennon. Oh, wow. Do you want to share more about that? Well, it's become an anthem for uh, post. It's a postmodernist anthem. It basically says, "I am I am the person who gets to determine what's true and what's false." Yeah. And I I understand what he's saying, but to say, "Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no country." Um, that's basically given people, you know, um, the freedom to say, "No country." no heaven, no God. It's all about me. And I'm like, nah, you're going to wake up one day and find out that's not, that's not, that's really screwed you. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that song has done a lot of damage yeah. to people. And I mean, I'm a huge John Lennon fan. And a lot of people think, well, he's an atheist. Well, don't forget. He also wrote, um, um, grow old with me, which, uh, which is a beautiful Christian wedding song. So I, I think he was a, a man who was, trying to figure out what was truth and had a song called give me some truth. So, yeah. but he never, he never landed on it because um, like so many of us, we want our own way. And that sense of wanting our own way, which is really the definition of sin. I mean, C.S. Lewis wrote at the end of um, the great divorce, he said, you know, there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, have that, thine own way. And to those to whom God says, have your own way. Mm. So he's going to, you know, we're either going to have have got have it God's way, or He's going to let us have it our way, and we will suffer the consequences. That's an interesting question. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting answer. I think part two of this someday will be um, diving deep into the Beatles story and the spiritual implications. <laughs> I'm a, there's my favorite band actually right behind me. There, I've got Revolver on the wall, but. Um, I love the Beatles and the gospels. I always say is like my, that's my songwriting uh, journey. Well, Vince, it's been amazing to have you. I wonder as we conclude this convo here, would you pray over us as we wrap things up? Yes, I would. And I see, are we going to do questions after this? Yes. We'll do questions after. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, Okay. Let's pray. (sighs) Heavenly father, I pray that you would use the words that we've shared today. If there was anything, if there was any error in what I said that you would, help us not to remember it, (laughs) but 
But if there's any truth that's your truth, that you would uh, speak it uh, into our hearts and that you would affirm it for your glory and for our good. Pray, Father, for these uh, men and women who have committed themselves to kingdom priorities and who want to use their time and their talents, their gifts and their passions to write, to perform, to to, uh, record things that would give you glory, that would illuminate who you are so that um, all would know that you're a loving, just, merciful God who sent his son to redeem the world and to give us life and life everlasting. Uh, thank you for Nick and for Eric and Chris, Chrissy. Uh, bless them, give them favor, and um, just thank you for this time we've had together. Amen. I hope that was as meaningful for you as it was for us. If you're a songwriter and you're resonating with any of what you heard today, we'd love to get to know you more and introduce you to some folks in our community. All of our podcast interviews and guest lectures come from either our Writing Club monthly breakouts or our annual Writing Worship Conference. Check out the show notes to learn how to get more involved with Writing Club, our mentorship taught by our founder, Chrissy Nordoff, or stuff we talked about in today's episode. Find us on Facebook at the Writing Worship Community, on Instagram at writingworship.co, and our website, writingworship.co. We love meeting new folks and supporting songwriters, so be sure to stop in, say hello, and get to know us a little bit. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The times I've grown most as a songwriter are the times I've had mentors showing me the way. If you're looking to grow as a songwriter, we're now accepting applications for our Worship Songwriter Mentorship. Now, it's available only a few times each year. The Worship Songwriter Mentorship is a songwriting intensive that will help you craft impactful worship songs. It's a course created by Dove Award-winning and Grammy-nominated, drumroll here please, (laughs) our founder, pro songwriter Chrissy Nordoff. It's a small group community, and it's led by other songwriters over the course of nine weeks. It's an intensive course and a small group co-writing environment, and that means you'll be added to a special group of about 12 writers, give or take. Each group is led by experienced songwriters, some of them my dear, dear friends, and I've even gotten to lead a group or two. Rachel here, by the way. We love the church, and we love to champion fellow worship songwriters just like yourself. In this mentorship, you'll learn how to write songs for you and your congregation. You'll go deeper in your intimacy with Jesus, You'll get the tools needed to help craft songs more easily and never run out of creative ideas. Okay, I know it sounds too good to be true, but trust me, this course is a game changer. You'll learn how to leverage your unique songwriting personality and connect with other like-minded writers in a meaningful way. Truly, I can't think of another course, group of people, community that has impacted my songwriting the way that this mentorship has. If you're wanting to take the next steps in your songwriting journey, then apply now at the link in our show notes. We hope to see you there.